We simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Bricorian, the director of the center. And our guest today is Jeremy Carl, who is a fellow with the Claremont Institute, which is based in California. But he's here in Washington because Claremont had an event, a conference, basically an all-day conference. The title of it was Lies of the Ruling Class. So it was on a variety of different topics. But Jeremy presented a presentation on the immigration issue, specifically on this idea of a nation of immigrants. The presentations, as far as I know, aren't online. They're sort of preparatory for a book. We'll be put together for a book at some point in the future. But I thought it would be good to have Jeremy come in and talk about, basically, what did he say in his presentation? Give us sort of the short version of it. Jeremy, thanks for coming in. So what about nation of immigrants? Aren't we a nation of immigrants? What's your problem? I must be a bad person. Well, I mean, we're certainly a nation with immigrants and we're a nation that has had immigration. I mean, those two things are indisputable, but that's a very different thing than being a nation of immigrants and the kind of entire ideology behind a nation of immigrants and even more particularly the verbiage around a nation of immigrants is a mid 20th century invention that appeared first in a book by John F. Kennedy I should say he didn't really write it, which is sort of important. We might get to later, but he didn't write Profiles in Courage. Either. He didn't write I mean, Profiles in Courage. He, he got a lot of credit for things <laughs> he did not do, but his name was on it. That kind of gave it common parlance. And this it, is still when he was a senator, right? This was in the late fifties, I believe. Yes, nineteen fifty-eight was the first edition, right. and then after he was assassinated, they came out with a second edition. And all of this was done very much with an eye the fifty-eight to his presidential run in nineteen sixty attempting to go after the northern ethnic vote, which at this time meant, you know, ethnic Europeans, Italians, Poles, et cetera. Very conscious strategy on Kennedy's part. And then the 1964, very much with an eye toward getting a new immigration bill, which became the infamous, uh, at least to us, Art Seller Bill of 1965, which totally transformed the nation's immigration system in ways that even the people who put it forward, I don't think, really anticipated. And the interesting thing is, if you read the book, this is Jack Kennedy's Nation of Immigrants book. I mean, in there, it specifically says, I forget the quote, I, don't, I mean, I've used it before, but something to the effect of, you know, the days of open, unsettled land and covered wagons and all that stuff means our mass immigration era is over now, but it's an important part of our past or some such right. thing like that. It's the exact opposite of the way they tried to use it politically. Absolutely. And I think the other interesting thing, not totally stunning for where it was, but given that Kennedy was you know, a Democrat and kind of attuned with his ear to the ground, it's exclusively focused on European immigration almost. And Mexicans who had been in the U.S. in various parts, I mean, if you go back to Mex- New Mexico and Arizona and parts of Texas for a quite a long time as immigrants and were coming in increasing numbers through various agricultural guest worker programs, et cetera, 
do not feature into this at all, which really shows just how electoral a program oh, this really was. Interesting. Um, yeah. And and obviously Chinese and Japanese were they brought nowhere in there. Is, yeah, exactly. is, uh, you know, I'd have to go so, back and read it. But. Interesting. So in other words, in a sense, Jack Kennedy himself saw it as electoral outreach. And then after his assassination, it was used really as a kind of propaganda tool to try to get immigration law changed. Absolutely. And there's not a coincidence that Ted Kennedy was really one of the congressional leaders who made a number of statements that have sort of proven to be dramatically false on Hart Seller in the wake of this saying, oh, it's not going to change the demographics and it's not going to be a big deal. And, and he specifically said it's not going to lead to the settlement of one million people a year into our right. cities. It's like, well, that's exactly literally what it what right. it's doing. So, right. So what in your presentation, what did you talk about in more detail about this or what? Sure. Well, so that's part of it. But let me kind of back up first and talk about kind of more deeply the question, which is to say that we're not a nation of immigrants, but we're a nation of settlers. And that is to say that the original people who came to America, the original Europeans, at least, obviously the Native Americans were still here, but they weren't coming here to join Native American society, they were coming to was, They were coming as immigrants. As to, yeah. Because they an immigrant were, comes to a pre-existing society. Right. And they were coming to build a new society. Now, that isn't to suggest, of course, that Native Americans did not have their own culture, their own civilization, that they weren't here or anything like that. It is to say simply that that was not what people, the, the Europeans who came here were there to join. And the net result of that, of course, was there was times of cooperation. There were times of conflict. There were atrocities on both sides that we can mention, but ultimately the overwhelmingly predominant society that we built, especially pre the Hart Cellar immigration law, was one that was a unique society that descended from these original settlers. And, I, and let me kind of go back and kind of talk a little bit about this more in historical context. So it's notable that when de Tocqueville came to the U.S. in about 1830, and this is 210 this is the French years. French political scientist and Correct. writer. Correct. Thank you. Right. Sorry. He wrote I, Democracy in America. He wrote Democracy in America, really probably the most famous book, certainly by any foreigner, I think, written about the American political project. But when he came here in 1830 to write this book, the word immigration is not mentioned even once. Really? Or immigrant. Interesting. And it wasn't, of course, because there was no immigration or immigrants in America at that time. Although I think it is important to note that at this point, 210 years now after settlement, there's a longer time between the initial European settlement and de Tocqueville than there is between de Tocqueville and us. So this hmm. is quite a long time, a majority of American history that essentially the overwhelming kind of settlement in the U.S. was really from Great Britain. I mean, at the time of the revolution, I don't know exactly what it was during the time of de Tocqueville, but at the time of the revolution, it was about 85 percent. British was about 9% German and 4% Dutch and then you know, small amounts of other plus, things. But I, plus the slave population. Yes, obviously. I'm sorry. Very, yeah. very important to note. And then enslaved African-Americans. And so that that is, you know, who properly and of themselves should not really be thought of as immigrants either. Right. Kind of insulting to that experience. Right. And in fact, Kennedy kind of messed that up in his book. If you sort of read about how right. he talked about it, it's like, well, I don't totally know that that's how I describe the experience of you know being enslaved and taken across the sea as, as an immigration I mean, essentially they were part of the founding stock of the country of course of, of course I mean yeah. they've been with us as part of the American story for time immemorial but but I wouldn't describe what they did exactly right. as immigration absolutely but anyway so you go to de Tocqueville and there's actually been some papers even written about well why didn't de Tocqueville 
talk about immigration or immigrants at all. And actually, in reading a couple of these, I mean, what it sort of comes down to is that it just it wasn't their way of thinking about a. It was a small number, relatively speaking, at this point. Right. Yeah, because this was before the Irish potato famine, right, when right. really kicked off immigration. Right. The Irish potato famine, and then the failed revolutions in Europe in the eighteen forties of eighteen forty eight. In the wake of that, we began to get the real first mass immigration to an independent America mm-hmm. at that time, and and the mass immigration of non kind of British people in significant numbers. But for de Tocqueville, this wasn't a big issue. So you sort of start with that. And then I think the kind of conjoint thing that we have to talk about, and I think this also played into probably how de Tocqueville saw it. There's a very famous American historian named Frederick Jackson Turner. And Frederick Jackson Turner, I mean, arguably, certainly the the most prominent American historian of the late 19th century, and still has quite an influence today. And he wrote a book called The Significance of the Frontier in American History that was based on a talk that he gave to the Organization of American Historians in 1893. And the significance of that particular date was that it was in 1890 that the Census Bureau finally declared the American frontier closed. And so there was a sense in and, which— And what the, just, just what that meant was— there really wasn't a frontier. In other Correct. words, there were patches of places that hadn't really been settled, but there was no actual kind of edge of settlement that was moving anymore. Co- Correct. And that basically, for the most part, America was kind of settled. There wasn't as much of a settler experience anymore. It was more of an immigration experience at that point where people were coming to society. However, I think it's important to note, even with that, and I, I will just go back even to my own mother, just to give an example. My mother was born in Phoenix, Arizona in 1941. At that time, Arizona had been a state for less than 30 years. Before that, I mean, we hadn't even had it as a organized, I mean, it was an organized territory, but that was it. It wasn't even fully part of the U.S. It had 60,000 people. For any of you who've been to Phoenix today. When your mother today, was born, there were only 60,000 people There were only 60,000 people Arizona? living in, in, wow. in Phoenix at the time. Oh, in Phoenix. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, tell, I tell my mom, I'm not going to say you're old, but the neighborhood, the house that you moved into knew when it was three is now part of a National Historic District. <laughs> um, but uh, my mom's only 80, you know, but uh, that remains the, the case. And she would talk to me even about kind of knowing people who'd come even in, I mean, not like a million people like this, but people who'd come in pioneer days and people from pioneer families, like in her own life and experience who were kind of settling what was at the time very thinly settled territory, at least in a, a European context. Uh, and in many ways- well, because, in any context. Yeah, really. in the, in the right. Arizona desert context, right. pretty much any context. The frontier was still kind of the echoes of it were still there. Right. And that's just in my mother's lifetime as a child. Right. So when we talk about this, we're not really talking about ancient history that we sort of had this Frontier, And of course, you know, during that time, at a certain point, there were obviously, again, immigrants coming to more settled communities. I mean, if you were settling in New York City or in Philadelphia in 1870, even let alone kind of the peak LSLN time, you were an immigrant at that point. I mean, you were coming into a settled society and a settled community. But that was by no means the universal American experience, even at that point. Mm-hmm. And so the point is, for the long, long time, in the majority of American history, we were really a nation exclusively of settlers. Then we went to a kind of mixed economy, if you will, of of settlers and immigrants, but in no way a quote-unquote nation of immigrants. And then it was really only in the 20th century that we kind of really began to get more 
a purely immigration paradigm of, of those immigrants. But of course, for 40 years of that, we had very, very low immigration numbers. Right, between the 20s and the 60s. And the 60s. Right. So the kind of time that we can point to in American history and say, well, this was the time that we were clearly a nation of immigrants and we were having tons of immigrants and it was just immigration and not settlement is actually a very small period like of the time. the past 50 years, basically. Yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, right. So it's sort of almost like retconning something that we have today onto the past. Uh, absolutely. And, and and this is the way that a lot of politicized history is done. And one can even understand it. I mean, it, it follows its own political logic and dictates and we have our own national myths and things. And the people who were kind of creating this nation of immigrants ideology who were heavily, particularly Jewish and Catholic immigrants, if you kind of look at the history of like who put together Kennedy's book, who was lobbying for it, who were lobbying on Hart Seller. Well, who was Emanuel Seller himself. Yeah, who was Emanuel Seller himself. Right. Again, a totally understandable desire to say, hey, like, we are part of the American story, which is true, obviously. And not only that, we've been a part of this story from time immemorial, or this this story is like always been the American story. And that's where it begins to get a little bit more into propaganda. That doesn't mean the people who advanced that were bad or were doing it for nefarious reasons. I mean, as as compared to some of the rhetoric around immigration today, I mean, it was actually quite healthy of them saying, hey, we want to be really American and we want to be treated like we're really American. So in that sense that it it's a healthy phenomenon. But yeah, that I mean, mean I, that- just to interject there, sorry to interrupt. I call that Martin the Armenian history. And <laughs> what I mean by that is there was in the records at Jamestown, there was the record of a guy named Martin the Armenian in like 1618, I think. So it's before the pilgrims even arrived in Jamestown. He was sent over by the British king. He was from Armenian from Iran and to try to get silk cultivation going in America because they figured that would be, you know, give it a try. Didn't work. He disappeared. But for the longest time, Armenians to sort of make the point that they were also here all along would talk about Martin the Armenian. You need to Poles do the thing with Kashushko, you know, who of course. participated in the revolution and all that sort of thing. So yeah. in a sense, it is, it's almost quaint nowadays to right. see this kind of analysis. Of course. And, and you could do the same thing with Jews or Italians. Sure, I sure. mean, again, you, you, the Martin, the Armenian story is due to be not obviously due to you since you're Armenian, but this was a, a trope almost, if you right. will, but a healthier one than where we were. But again, uh, we have to distinguish that from what actual history was. Right. And that's what I was really trying to do. In my talk. Interesting. Yeah. And Sam Huntington wrote about this, obviously, in a good deal in Who We Are or Who Are We? Who Are, Who are we? we? Yeah. Where he said there was a line, I think it was, if I think I'm quoting it correctly, settlers had to create America before immigrants could move to America. Sure. Something like that. And yeah. so, in a sense, you know, it's not that the nation of immigrants mythology and using that in a non derogatory term, just as the storyline is incorrect, it's just incomplete, I think is kind of what yeah. you're saying. Yeah, that's correct. And, and in fact, the other kind of big thing that I touched on in my talk in this context is the Statue of Liberty, because, okay. and in fact, Mark, in your book, I know you had a kind of modified Statue of Liberty quite quite memorably. But And so, you know, obviously, I would expect a fair bit of this history, but maybe I even have a sub point that will be new to you. But if you actually kind of look at it, first of all, the Statue of Liberty, which we kind of almost associate as the biggest symbol of immigration out there, it was not at all designed to be a monument to immigration. It was a monument to democracy and Franco-American friendship. 
and ultimately emancipation. Yes, too, and emancipation. She has chains broken in her feet, you know, that kind of thing. Absolutely. End of slavery. Absolutely. It was, it was done by sort of a very abolitionist, sympathetic Frenchmen. And so that was there. Emma Lazarus's poem, The New Colossus, was read as a part of a fundraiser, you know, where people contributed a number of items to help build the pedestal for the statue base. This was in the 1880s. The statue was dedicated in 1886. The poem played no role in it. And it was sort of forgotten. This is the give me your tired, your poor. You're tired, you're poor, you're huddled masses. Right. Interestingly enough, though, the person who sort of picks this up after Lazarus dies in 1887. Okay. And the person who picks this up is a woman. I'm just blanking all of a sudden on her first name, but she is a Schuyler. And for those of you who've Uh. seen Hamilton, it is one of the Schuyler. It's not literally one of the Schuyler sisters because we're, we're forward several generations. And in fact, there's like a couple different ways that this was intermarried, but she's a great granddaughter of Alexander Hamilton. She knew Hamilton's widow because Hamilton's widow lived quite uh, to the age of 97 and, and died when this woman was 13. And the Schuylers were one of the Dutch, the Dutch ultra elite families yeah, of exactly. society. Again, for those of you who've seen Hamilton, you'll be familiar with this story, but they were the ultra elite. And so she was coming from this. And then the kind of interesting question becomes, well, how did this woman who decided that she really wanted to memorialize Emma Lazarus know Emma Lazarus, who was Jewish And typically for a Jewish family at that time, you would not have been associated with kind of like upper crust wasps in that way. That just wasn't the kind of society that we lived in in America. But she was kind of an old line. She was Sephardic. She was a relatively elite family, right? And and, and that you've just given away the answer, which is (laughs) she is Lazarus herself. And I think this is important to kind of understand her ideology and how we kind of came to this poem was from this very unique Sephardic background. She came over on the Jewish equivalent of the Mayflower in 1653, her family from Recife, Brazil, really the first immigration of Jews to the United States. And she was from a very acculturated, Americanized family of very high social standing. And so she was kind of hanging out with these Schuylers in New York. And I think so in some ways, she hadn't really even thought about her Jewish identity until there were these pogroms in Russia Hmm. that partially inspired her to kind of write this poem and think in this way. And so it was a combination of sort of Jewish ethnic feeling and the fact that both she and Schuyler were kind of a certain type of elite old money wasp, for lack of a better term or way to Not put Protestant it. Necessarily, Not Protestant necessarily, but wasp but that in a kind of that was general the culture. cultural sense. That right. was the culture, you know, and they, they were kind of these limousine liberals sure. or awfuls, we might even call them, you know, affluent white female liberals. Right. And that, that was sort of, you know, it's kind of an interesting combination, particularly within Lazarus, of a sort of ethnic interest and a kind of hyper-establishment leftism that we see even today in some of the immigration debates. Anyway, so Schuyler, I don't think I kind of gave the punchline, manages to do this campaign and 20 years later gets Lazarus's poem put on oh, the base of yeah. the Statue of Liberty. It's on the inside. Uh, so yeah, on, on, the, a on the inside. or something on the wall somewhere. But it was because, you know, these people were, were ultra connected in this very establishment. Again, I, I'm slightly misusing the term, but limousine liberal way that they were even able to come in here and be heard in this particular debate. Interesting, interesting. So it's almost, I mean, I don't mean to apply my own, sort of project my own ideas on this, but it seems there's a certain amount of sort of almost condescension toward regular immigrants. I mean, it's kind of like 
the way you deal with, you know, some wealthy person deals with Maria the maid and Jose the landscaper kind of thing. Well, if, you know what you, I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And if you read the poem, it's the wretched refuse. Right. I mean, <laughs> this is not like a super inspiring. I mean, again, I'm not saying this. I think to be a good historian, you always look at people in context. I'm not here to judge Lazarus. We're here to understand Lazarus and Schuyler and the sorts of things that motivated them to do what they did. But I think the point is, yeah, there's a, there's a certain Maria, the maid element of this. And she wasn't sort of in her mind, welcoming people per se as social equals with someone who had been like her family in America for tons of time, but just like, Oh, well, yes, we're going to, we're going to help you because we feel very bad about you. And, and, and again, for those who are familiar with elite liberals today, this type of language and, attitude is pretty familiar. And I mean, just one last point on this, and then I want to ask about what are sort of the consequences now, but being old money, old line Sephardic, the Ashkenazi Jews from not just Ashkenazim, but from from Russia, were not seen as uh, greeted sort of in the warmest <laughs> terms by their co-religionists in the United States. It really just sort of reinforces this condescension kind of attitude. No, absolutely. There was a significant amount of ethnic embarrassment. I mean, and this was true. People like Lazarus's background were really, really unusual at this point. I mean, it would have been extraordinarily unusual for where she was. So they they condescended to everybody, again, almost in the way that an old line, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, you know, pilgrim descended family would have. But even the German Jews who'd come in the 1850s and from sort of a more affluent background in the wake of these revolutions kind of tended to look at all these guys coming from Russia and Poland in the late 19th and early 20th centuries and are sort of like, oh, well, you know, they're kind of us, but they're also kind of a little bit of an embarrassment. And there, I think there's elements of that in the poem and in, in Lazarus's attitude ultimately. And I mean, not to get too far afield, but the slur applied to Jews was actually invented by German Jews applied to Russian Jews because when they, many of the Russian Jews coming were illiterate. And then what you had to do was make an X on the paper. And these guys coming, you know, they were chased out by the Cossacks, so they were naturally suspicious. They were like, well, that means I'm converting to Christianity. I'm making a cross. They said, okay, just draw a circle for heaven's sake. And circle in German is keikel. And so that's where that slur comes from, not from wow. people on the outside. So anyway, that, that's a that that's, is an interesting little bit of uh, trivia. That that's more trivia about. than we need now. But this is all fascinating, and I actually learned a few things here. I didn't even know about Skyler. So so what? What does this have to do with immigration policy today? Yeah, thank you. And and I this is what I actually start with my talk in in talking about because it's sort of like, well, why? Who cares? Right? Mm-hmm. Like this is an interesting story. But what I think it does is. If we've always been a nation of immigrants and we're a nation of immigrants, well, that implies that we don't have any justification for ever turning off that spigot or reducing that flow or kind of asking suggestions about what types of immigrants and how many we want and what sort of skills we might want them to have if we care about that. If we're a nation of immigrants, there's a certain implicit kind of statement that we don't get to care about any of that. It's wrong to care about any of that. And it's it is un-American. It's un-American and it's contrary to our traditions. Right. And what I try to show in this talk is that really none of that is true. None of that is really representative. There have been times where we've obviously been more immigration focused in this country, certainly post-65. We've had that and have also a very different character 
of immigration in the post-65 era, but that for long periods of time, in fact, most of American history, it's not really the most accurate way to understand the American experience and even the American migrant experience, the folks coming here. And that when we take that sort of fuller understanding of what the immigration experience means and what it is that it opens up a set of fully American policies that we can talk about that are consistent with our traditions and history that are not just fling open the border to whoever wants to come here, regardless of how Americans think about it. So other than conferences like last week's conference, how do we change the thinking about this? Because this nation of immigrants idea has become kind of uh, almost sort of accepted dogma. How do we get beyond that? Well, I mean, in small ways, this is why I'm talking to you, right? I mean, obviously, people who are going to listen to this podcast are a little more motivated, but they will also talk to other people and they'll know this history and in talking about these things and then returning these into to a book and I'm going to write some articles on this. And so it's just, it's, these are long processes. I mean, we can't just snap our fingers, but I, in trying to arm people with a kind of more sophisticated and accurate understanding of America's immigration history, I think ultimately then you just, you open up the space for a fuller and more mature and more serious discussion. And again, that's not something that's just going to happen overnight, but it it can happen. And that's ultimately why I'm speaking about this and why I'm writing about it. So how does this fit into broadly what Claremont does? If you could tell us maybe a little bit about the Claremont Institute. It's not a college or anything. It's like a think tank out in California, in Claremont, California, Southern California. But sort of tell us a little bit about what it does and how does this kind of thing fit into that? Yeah, well, Claremont is very focused on the American idea, the principles of the founding, restoring the principles of the founding to their rightful place in American life, I believe is a significant part of our tagline. I'm sure uh, our development people will wrap me across the knuckles <laughs> if I, I got some of that wrong. But well, It's Claremont.org, it's right? Claremont.org, so wonderful. Okay. Uh, I should also plug my own Twitter account while we're here at, uh, at JeremyCarl4, J-E-R-E-M-Y-C-A-R-L-4 where you can find when I write about immigration or other subjects. But Claremont's a terrific organization. And so we're very interested. We, we spend a lot of our time, as compared to most think tanks, particularly think tanks in the policy world, really exploring a lot of the debates from the earliest periods of American history. You know, What did the founders want? What did they think about? We're also particularly influenced. Lincoln has been a real touchstone for the Institute for a long time and really are our intellectual founder was a man named Harry Jaffa, who, who died a few years back, wrote a very famous book on Lincoln and the Lincoln-Douglas debates called The Crisis of the House Divided. We think a, a tremendous amount at Claremont relative to other people about the principles of American founding and American history. And so I think thinking about our national identity in this way, in a sort of more historical way, in a more historically accurate way, in what it means to be a nation, what it means to be unified, how the founders thought about kind of like what Americanism was and what should be American is kind of part and parcel where it it comes into these sorts of debates. Claremont's sort of the heavy-duty publication is Claremont Review of Books, correct? Correct. So we have the Claremont Review of Books, and then we have a publication that is increasingly influential online called The American Mind. Which is shorter pieces usually, which is right? Which sort is usually shorter pieces kind of. and a little, more, a little more edgy, for lack of a better right. term. Claremont Review of Books, again, I can say, I said this even before I joined up with with Claremont when I was still at the Hoover Institution, I don't think you'll find a 
better piece of kind of intellectual production on the right in terms of just really thinking through ideas in a really rich way. Uh, I'm not just a fellow, but I'm a subscriber, reader, and occasional contributor when they let me and is is a really terrific uh, publication. But we do that and we do conferences. We do a lot of training of fellows in various periods of their career, some early folks and some folks who are already well established. And we try to teach them about the principles of the American founding and the American idea. And you have an office here in Washington too now. This is relatively new. We do. And I think that's that's been a very healthy thing because to be relevant in these policy debates, it really does help to be here. And that's why I got on a plane from Montana <laughs> to do the whirlwind for a few days. And we'll continue to do that every couple months at least just because obviously this is where policy is made. And so you need to have a presence here. Unfortunately, but that's the way it is. That's why we're here too. So this is Jeremy Carl, who is a fellow at the Claremont Institute about a presentation he made at a conference here in DC on the nation of immigrants idea. Will you be writing like a short version of it for American Mind? Too? I, I, because I will be. So I probably will do something for American Mind. There'll definitely be a book chapter of this and some other things. And I should mention, I think we were talking before we went on the air. I do think they are going to be posting the videos of these oh, okay, presentations good. online. So you could probably go to the Claremont website and check it out. Yeah, they might not be up by the time we post this. So we probably can't put it in the show notes. No. But you can go to claremont.org and it should be there. Yeah, we will have it up there in the Center for the American Way of Life, which is the name of our DC Center. Okay, excellent. Okay, well, thank you, Jeremy Carl from the Claremont Institute. Maybe when the book comes out, we'll have you back to talk about it some more. Absolutely. Pleasure to be with you, Mark. And finally, I wanted to draw your attention to two things that were published on our website this week, CIS.org. One was a report on the size of the foreign-born population by our director of research, Steve Camerata, and Karen Ziegler, part of his number-crunching team. And what they reported was that the foreign-born population, the total number of immigrants, legal, illegal, everything, all put together, reached 47 million in April. This is the largest number ever in history. And that in itself, the largest number, isn't that surprising because the population obviously gets bigger overall anyway, but it's approaching the highest percentage ever within a few more years, unless there's some change in policy, the percentage of foreign-born people. And again, that's not the kids of immigrants. That's just people who were not American citizens at birth, people who came here will be the highest percentage ever in American history and just keep climbing after that. The other interesting thing is that from this report, the, Steve and his team concluded that the total foreign-born population has increased by 2 million people just since January of 2021 when Joe Biden was inaugurated as president. So during Joe Biden's term so far, and it's only been, what is it, 16 months, has increased by 2 million. And of that 2 million, Something like two-thirds were illegal immigrants, even though legal immigration is clearly a much bigger deal overall. The large majority of immigrants are legal, and the impacts that immigration has on America is mainly caused by legal immigration. Nonetheless, in this space of less than a year and a half under Joe Biden, two-thirds of the increase in the total foreign-born population has been driven by illegal immigration. And we see that at the border crisis. And that brings me to the other point, a blog post that Todd Benzman wrote. And what he did was he lives in Texas anyway. And so periodically, even though he's got plenty of things on his plate, he goes to the border to see what's going on. And remember, Title 42 supposedly was going to be lifted in late May 
even though that was put on hold by a federal judge, but Todd wanted to go down and see what was going on. Was the expectation that Title 42 was going to be lifted, increasing the flow, or what were people thinking? So we went to Del Rio. Remember, this is where all those Haitians were under the bridge last year. So it was a relatively sleepy part of the border that has become much busier. And what he found was that basically Title 42 isn't really applying to almost anybody except Guatemalans and Hondurans. And that he talked to all kinds of Cubans and Nicaraguans, Peruvians and others who were exempted from Title 42. And what he saw there was basically a round-the-clock conveyor belt of Greyhound buses and airplanes, because there's a small airport there as well, shuttling people who have come and turned themselves into the Border Patrol, processed, as the administration says, and then just let go. And, you know, maybe five years from now, they'll have an asylum hearing or maybe not. The point there is that even though Title 42 is nominally still in place, the administration has made so many carve-outs, has exempted so many categories of people from it, that it's lost its deterrent effect. It just doesn't do any good anymore because the administration is simply not applying it to the majority of the people who are apprehended or encountered under the PC term you now have to use at the border. So the illegal population is going to continue increasing. And when Steve and his team do another update on the total size of the foreign-born population, maybe in a few months, we're likely to see, you know, continued large share of the growth in the total immigrant population being driven by illegal immigration caused by President Biden's policy choices. This is not the weather, this is not the tides or the continental drift. This is specifically caused by a series of policy decisions, some of them predating Biden, but Biden took a border that was basically kind of stable. It wasn't fixed. There were a lot of problems, but it was stable under President Trump, and the Biden administration broke it. And now they're surprised at having to deal with the consequences. That's it for this week in Parsing Immigration Policy. This is Mark Krikorian. If you get your podcast on any of the platforms that allow ranking or comments, please leave some, positive or negative. And if you have any comments you want to direct to me specifically, feel free to just email me at msk at cis.org. I hope you tune in next week. Thanks. <laughs>